Hi, I'm Lauren Hunter. And I'm Kate Vlasic. And this is Generation BSC, the podcast where we deep dive into the Babysitter's Club, both the books and the series. And today we're super excited because we are going to open things up to an even greater context. Yeah, so um, we are continuing our mini-series about the Netflix series and also the uh, documentary, The Claudia Kishi Club, which is a uh, produced, directed by Sue Ding. And today we have one of our listeners as a guest. Um, Anna Gwen is here to talk with us about the documentary, about the Babysitter's Club series, her history with everything, and give us some of her thoughts and feelings. Um, She has a little bit, not a little bit, a huge background (laughs) in um, critical theory and reading. And I will let her introduce herself because I am obviously not doing as good a job as she might do. So Anna, go ahead. uh, Let us know and let our listeners know who you are and what you do and what you think about the Babysitter's Club generally in your history. Okay, so as Kate has already introduced my name, I'm Anna Wynn. Um, my, I call it my cosplay, Claudia cos, cosplay Instagram account, which is called What Would Claudia Wear? Um, that's a riff on the, the very popular What What Claudia Wore blog um, back in the days when um, the person was um, blogging and cataloging Claudia's outfits throughout the series, but I thought that I could just do a more how would Claudia grow up and wear her clothes. I'm a PhD student. Um, I'm, I study rhetoric and I have a little bit of a literary studies background in what I do. I, mo- I mostly focus on food and literature. That's, that's my, what I'm writing my dissertation on. Um, so I have a weird geographic history. I'm doing my PhD in Montreal, but I'm in I'm at Harvard right now doing a research fellowship here, so that's what I'm. I'm here for the next year or so, working my dissertation and um, collecting more. I don't know what you want to call it: theories, background information, whatever, whatever that is. So that's what I'm doing. Um, I started this whole Claudia blog, Instagram blog, because, like many of us, when the pandemic hit, um, I just found myself furloughed from my part-time gig. Um, I had a lot of free time and I didn't necessarily want to use up all my free time doing my dissertation work because I think I would just have gone crazy or I just needed some sort of, some sort of a small hobby. And I, and, um, that led up to me just rereading the BSC snark blog. I'm sure you two are familiar with that. And also Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. reread the, uh, what Claudia wore blog. I thought, I was a bit unnerved by some of the comments. I know maybe social media dictums would tell you not to read comments, but I do that to torture myself. And a lot of the comments were really unkind, unkind readings of particularly Jesse. They kept, there were some recurring comments where they say, Jesse's always talking about her blackness. That's her defining factor. And um, if I remember correctly, those comments were dated somewhere between 2010, 2012, so, you know, early 2010-ish years. And wow. and you know now that in 2020, during this whole revival of the Black Lives Matter movements, the social movement, social protests, that I think those comments haven't aged well. And we're, into, and we're in this anti-racist discourse. And I just wanted to review what, what I missed out as a young reader because um, I was in ESL growing up. And and maybe I was just using the books as just a, a cursory way to 
help me read and understand basic grammar structures. So I read that as a kid, not really caring too much about what is now what we now consider a legacy. So I'm, it's more of a pedagogical moment for me to look at what was kids literature like and when we read it now what did it sorely miss so and and I know that sounds ambitious because if you look at my Instagram it's just kind of me wearing ridiculous outfits when I go to Harvard or when I used to go to Harvard um so but but I don't actually know what the copyright laws are for Instagram that's why I, I tend to keep my feed as just pictures of myself and with weird captions that I try to make fun of like the outfit description. Sometimes it gets old, so sometimes I'm really short. But it's usually in my videos where you'll see my annotated analysis on um, on a myriad of topics. So I collect Claudia's outfits. And recently I've been looking more at the discourse of how things are described, how they talk about race, um, othering, and relationships with each other. And um, sometimes Claudia's hatred of schoolwork pops up. And maybe that's something that we could talk about for the Claudia Kishi Club. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited to to get to talk to you and to dig in with this, um, especially because Anna has been really um, a great resource for us. So as we have shared a number of times, you know, Kate and I have a very similar background, um, and we don't always know. We don't always say the right thing. That's one of our commitments to you guys is that we're going to part of our anti-racist. Um, commitment is you know owning up to mistakes and, and and ways that we can do better and Anna has been a huge part of that for us so um, one of the things that she uh, pointed out a couple weeks ago that we haven't had a chance to really address yet is in our Claudia conversation um, I was trying to make a, a point about a common story um, around um, children of immigrants often you know having different expectations of what their parents want and and that's a that's a common theme that we see in in books and movies and television and in trying to do so I got really general because I didn't feel confident talking about the actual topic and in a way that um, ended up being very othering in and of itself referring to only very you know stereotypical um, Asian markers things like chopsticks or taking off the shoes Um, so things like that Anna has been really really great at helping us expand our resources expand our knowledge um, really open our eyes to that so and I think that that's one of the things that the Claudia Kishi Club documentary does really well Um, one of the things that stood out for me watching it was um, how impactful it was the idea that Claudia was the cool girl that everyone wanted to be Uh, because I did want to be Claudia. Kate and I have talked about Mm -hmm. that numerous times. And um, I personally, I can't speak for Kate because we haven't discussed this, but I personally never really took the Asian um, or her Japanese heritage into account when I was thinking about wanting to be Claudia. That was sort of a, um, I mean, that was obviously part of who she was, but that wasn't like what I was attracted to about her. Um, And I thought that that was a really interesting point because, um, I, I think that sometimes um, there's a, and maybe it's more recently than than in the, it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but it feels like sometimes there's a um, interest in Asian culture that feels fetishistic in a way. Um, and for all of the Babysitters Club's issues with not dealing with race in a very um, well-rounded way, I, I think it does a relatively good job of not making it too fetishistic um, but it does engage in that model minority um, so I, I, you would mention that as well um, and 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 the difference between 
the Janine character and the Claudia character in representation as well. So um, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, uh, both in the series and in the um, the book series and the TV series. So I rewatched the Claudia Kishi Club documentary in anticipation for today's discussion. And um, are you familiar with the podcast Asian Americana? I'm not, no. If, if you're not, at least there's one episode, episode seven, that's um, titled Claudia Kishi. And a lot of the, some of the people who are interviewed for the documentary are in it, like you, me, Phil Yu, who's angry Asian man, uh, Su Ding, mm-hmm. they're all, I think this was because um, there were there was a plan, it was, there was a plan to talk about the upcoming documentary that we now know as the Claudia Kishi Club. So they, they talk about some of the topics that was were explored in the documentary. Um, so the documentary itself, I think, to me, it isn't... The only new thing to me about Claudia is I didn't know that she had a legion or some sort of legacy for um, people who um, consider themselves Asian American. I, I didn't really care about Claudia's character. <laughs> I just <laughs> happened to use her because um, I tend to dress a bit odd for the Harvard crowd. And I mean, that was just my yeah. shtick. So, so, you know, that's just the shallow reasons. But um, so in the documentary, which I think was really well done, they, they still talk about the cool girl trope that you've gestured at, that she's a great dresser, that she's able to express herself artistically and creatively, um, that she's a junk food fanatic. And those themes to me, they didn't resonate with me and that's fine. But what I'm, what I want to push to talk about Claudia is what does it mean for us to say that she subverted the stereotypes of the, the smart Asian, the, the overachiever Asian like her sister is? I, I just feel like the more that we say that she subverted those stereotypes, that we're actually also othering her in the sense that we, we have a lot of hopes for Claudia and those hopes could be for personal issues, for personal reasons or for, for what they... Um, the people who were being interviewed were saying like they want they saw themselves through Claudia and I'm not I'm not sure if I really am satisfied with that argument because I consider Claudia just just kind of like a branded manufactured character by Scholastic which is just a multinational chain that's that tries to sell products to kids you know and then there's also the issue of mm-hmm. You know, Anna Martin was 31. I was doing the calculations because the first book was released in 1986 and she was, she's born in 1955. So she was 31 when she conceived of this, this series. And, you know, the history of Asians, um, I, I, I consider myself Vietnamese because that's my first language. My parents, my, you know, immigrated to the United States after the fall of Saigon in 1975. So, you know, there's, that's 11 years when the, the book was when the book was first released, and then we're not even talking about Pearl Harbor. So her understanding of what it means to be specifically Japanese-American, I think we need to pay more attention to that context, especially with with what the desires of the the teaching objectives for the books were just really just to, to encourage readership. So when we, when we kind of place our hopes on Claudia, like... For what reasons and why just Claudia? I think that's a, a really good point because um, I think what when you what you said about you know being so sort of invested in the fact that Claudia doesn't fit that model minority standard it it sort of 
others her in that she's being compared to that. Whereas, you know, with Christy or Marianne or Stacey or, you know, anyone of any of the other, you know, white characters, we're not holding them up to this sort of pop culture or societal standard and comparing them to that they're they just get to be the character that they are and i feel like that was one thing that was sort of interesting in watching the documentary in that like like lauren said also it claudia was just like the cool character who was artistic and wore fun clothes and it just so happened that she was asian and so i think it's like on the one hand it's great that they made an asian character who wasn't the model minority but on the other hand she's also just who she is and then also to your point she's you know she has the certain characteristics because scholastic and anna martin wanted to have someone who wasn't the same as the rest of the girls and so they were trying to sort of round out the characters so it's it's there's a lot of things to consider when you think about claudia and where she fits in society and i think it's interesting hearing from you that you didn't necessarily relate to her as much because you didn't you know she wasn't like you and you didn't necessarily see yourself in Claudia solely because she was Asian, particularly since you're Vietnamese and she's Japanese and that, you know, that's a whole other, you know, can of worms, I guess, that, you know, just because someone's Asian doesn't mean that you're all Asian in the same way. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in the conversation because people are so focused on the fact that Claudia is not a quote unquote typical Asian character. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess I never really thought about it um, in that specific way before. But um, what is it about the Kishis in the books that we've read so far that is specifically Japanese? And I, I can't think of anything. They're just, uh, it's a much more broad, uh, stereotypical Asian, um, like they're, they're, they haven't talked anything specifically about Japan or their Japanese heritage other than Mimi speaks Japanese as her first language. Um, I thought they did a better job in the show of, of discussing, you know, Japanese history within the U.S. and being honest about what that looks like. Uh, but it still wasn't a major focus. And I guess for me, um, when it comes to questions about representation like that, that's one of the things that I sort of struggle to articulate um, or uh, explain or even really think about for myself, but the idea of, yes, having more characters of any different race, creed, background, um, sexual orientation, gender, whatever, everyone wants to see themselves in the, re- reflected in the media that they look at or <laughs> it, it take in. But what makes effective representation? For, for you, Anna, what, what do you think, what are you hoping for, what are you looking for in, um, in pop culture, whether it's for kids, whether it's for adults, what do you makes good representation? So I, so I want to give some credit to both the documentary and then the Asian Americana, Americana podcast. They talked about about the whitewashing aspect of Claudia. So you know, there of course is kind of the 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 not so open secret that Claudia is the conception of a white woman vision of what it means to be Asian and especially an Asian girl. Mm-hmm. So they do talk about that, um, but I think that's where I'm not sure if it's just enough to say. But that's that's all that we had at the time. I I think what I'm I'm hesitating because I don't know how to say this very kind. Uh, no, not kind. I just I want to be very careful because, like, I'm very purposeful when I say 
how people they identify themselves as Asian American or you know I think those mean very personal things to to those who want those kind of categorizations um, I think I think I hesitate because because I'm I don't see the struggle in seeing representation only because I don't only look for representation in Asian American communities because I grew up uh, bilingual I had other sources like my parents would rent um, soap operas that from Hong Kong China Taiwan they were dubbed in Vietnamese so I had that I also listened oh, wow. to, yeah. so I mm-hmm. listened and I listened to my parents music from the 60s and 70s and that and so I, I mean it I mean it sincerely like I had mentioned to Bettina's article uh, when she wrote for Vice, you know, it was called the an ode to Claudia Kishi. I am I was, I'm quoting in it, but it actually I consider the BSC books to be part of my cultural milieu to for me to just fill in the gaps from what what I had problems with because I just had a hard time as a kid speaking English and I was made fun of a lot and um I had to spend I think five six years an hour each of my um, classes I had to go to a special room to practice my speech and um, and so I do I look at these books fondly because they were they were my first sources of American culture but my my yearning for representation didn't stop at just American media because I already had my parents Mm -hmm. you know so maybe Maybe for those who really hold dearly to Claudia, it's because she was one of the very few to be part of the the mainstream Asian American discourse, and you know, and if that means something to them, it does. It just doesn't mean anything to me, and and maybe that's a bit a different discussion to be had about well, in you know, these books were first released in 1986, and in 2020, what other Asian American representation do we have? You know, I, I mean, stuff like that's, that. So that's a really great point. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any is there any currently like um, in American pop culture, any good representations that you that you can point to? So I. I'm thinking, of course, I think of Sandra Oh, Killing Eve and Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't I consider Asian American representation just it has to be on screen and off screen like they have a. Uh, um, some sort of power in the way they control the narrative because I don't think mm-hmm. necessarily that just because you have a few Asian writers in the room that that makes a good storyline. I think I think there is, I think it's a matter of how do you write in differences because I also really enjoyed the Babysitters Club Babysitters Club reboot on Netflix, but I don't think the writing is very strong. So I and and I think you were referencing um, episode six in the series and. I I guess I've rewatched I've rewatched that series maybe a dozen times now just to like and because I just don't understand the critical acclaim and by when I say I don't understand it's just I see very obvious problems but I think but I think during hard times people want to give nice nice shows a pass you know but for me as a critical consumer I just think that it's not hard for me to point out things that I see as either kind of cursory or a bit shallow because when when I've been in the margins for so long and that, that stuff to me is just so obvious you know and so mm-hmm. so what I didn't understand I still don't understand from the books are the are Claudia's parents 
she keeps saying like Japanese American, but that she and Janine are born in Sonia Brook, but that exactly is what Japanese American is. So I don't even know what, what the writers are saying about this identity construction. And then on the show, Claudia talks to Janine when um when Mimi is speaking in Japanese and Claudia, who's supposed to be close to Mimi, says like, well, Mimi was born in America. Like, it, there doesn't seem to be any kind of connection and relationship between grandmother and grandchild. So I don't, I don't even know what what kind of history they're trying to create in this in the storyboards because I don't think they even know who's Japanese American, who's Japanese, and who's not. I just, I think that was a glaring defect in the storyline. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I hadn't thought about it quite in that way, but. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect, like you said, in in who who identifies which way, who we are identifying in which way, and you know what what that familial relationship would actually look like. And in fact, Kate and I had that conversation just a few episodes ago, where we were unclear even from the books who exactly emigrated here, when did that happen, what their experience was, and I I think you're right. I don't think the show cleared that up um, at at all either. Yeah. And I, I do. I also wanted to note, like you said, Anna, I think I think people are definitely feeling the nostalgia for the show and maybe giving it a little bit more of a pass because, you know, we haven't seen any kind of representation of the Babysitter's Club in about 25 years on any kind of screen. So I think people are super happy about that and like seeing the updates. But, you know, and I think Lauren and I have touched on this a little bit that, you know, it it's a kid's show. So how critical should we be? I mean, it's obviously, you know, you've listened and we've had some conversations offline that, you know, we're trying to be critical and trying to figure out how critical we should be and in what light we should examine the show versus the books. And it, I mean, obviously it's, it's a whole big complicated thing to consider, but I, it's really interesting hearing your thoughts on being critical and how (laughs) it's a little bit interesting that everyone's sort of, keeping all the accolades and maybe not paying as much attention to the things that maybe could have been done better to make it an even better show. Yeah, I for sure can say that uh, I was not, have not been thinking about the show critically with like my English major hat on, like breaking down story beats and stuff. I have definitely been um, more in the emotional zone um, when, when looking at these. And so like my complaints have been more about like, how did this make me feel? And what do I wish I would have, you know, would have done that and I have not used as much of a critical analysis as we do sometimes with the books um, and I, I think that that's an interesting point that it is you know partially because nobody wants to be super critical about anything right now we're just kind of there's plenty of that going on elsewhere in the world plenty of things to be critical about what were some of the things that were sort of the biggest glaring issues that you pointed out or recognized so I <laughs> um, I really dislike the character of Don and Christy in the books I just consider them as as examples of white excellence. And when I say white excellence, it's just something I borrowed. I went to a panel on, um, it was moderated by an indigenous scholar and there were four black sociologists um, talking about their work and how their work has largely been ignored in the, the very white academy. And when it was time for questions, everyone who was more reflective kind of hesitated, especially when, it, when they weren't black because you know, it was a it was a panel on black scholarship and what it means to study black, black, black communities, and there was this one. She was she she passed as white and she was really enthusiastic. She was waving her hand wildly. She was the only one, 
and um, the moderator, the indigenous scholar said, well, I guess it'll be the colonial excellence. And we, a lot of us laughed, but I don't think uh, she, because, you know, it was just this kind of moment of critical reflection. If sometimes you just have to read the room and wait for other people to speak mm-hmm, before you do. Mm-hmm. So when I say white excellence, it's because Christine gets a lot of the, when she, even when she's not the narrator, people pride her for being bossy, which I think is a very second wave white feminist. And the show also suffers from that. Like, I don't, I don't know what it's like to be a child in 2020 and have, and have relationships when, when there's an obvious power dynamic. So between Christy and Marianne on the show, well, Christy's white and Marianne's not, not white. So, and the way that they, they portray her as weepy and sensitive, like as true to the books, I think, I'm not sure if that, that translates very well in this kind of 2020 um, racialized discourse, which which is, if you're if you're a considerate, careful white friend, you should you shouldn't talk to your friend that way, especially when your friend's not white. That's really fascinating. I did mm-hmm. not I did not think about how that um, about some of those uh, I don't want to say negative character traits, but all of the girls have you know pluses and minuses about mm-hmm. their personalities. That's the part of the learning of, of being aimed at younger kids. But I did not at all reflect on how some of Mary Ann's less strong um, character traits translated and, and interact, intersection, you know, that intersectionality mm-hmm. with the, the change in her race portrayal for the show. That's really fascinating. I, I'm, I'm excited to sit with that one for myself for a little bit. I feel like an interesting counterpoint to that would be, you know, hypothetically, what if Christy were the biracial character? Would we be then having a conversation about how, you know, sort of is Christy representing the, you know, sort of bad characters, you know, like on reality TV in particular, I watch a lot of America's Next Top Model and Tyra talks a lot um, about not wanting to cast, you know, another quote unquote black bitch. And you know, would we be talking about how Christy is being portrayed in a negative way? I, I just think it, it, that's a sort of counterpoint, but not, yeah. I guess not a counterpoint, but it's a, a sort of, as you were talking, that was another thing I was thinking of is, you know, Marianne is the character they chose to make biracial, but what would the implications be if they had chosen any of the other white characters and made them the biracial character? What would our conversation be from that perspective? Well, there, there's a lot of discussions about what it means to talk up to the white woman. And I think that that's a good lesson for actually for children to have, which is you have to immediately notice power dynamics. And that doesn't even mean as a kid, that doesn't mean like who has more money or who has not. It's about who who has whose voices get heard and whose voices are left out. And I think mm-hmm. a careful writer would consider that even if Christy was was continued to be the white character on the show. And also when Dawn is introduced, Christy was very unkind to her. And it was just, you know, it was like back to back. Christy being mean girling the two non-white characters. It just, it didn't yeah, leave. That's a, a book. Yeah. And then when you watch the um, very last episode, I don't know if I'm spoiling, but I just, when I watched this again, I thought I turned to my partner and said, yeah, that's why I don't like Christy. It's because when um, Meanie was going to send Claudia and Dawn home, Christy comes in and said, she changed her mind by saying, look, I had to rescue my stepsister because no one was paying attention to her at camp. And I think that that also sends a bad message because 
there's this white lady in power who's about to send two non-white kids home and then in comes the white girl with with another white stepsister who was lost and then that made her change yeah. her mind it just mm-hmm. it's just not a good look and it's just that's that's what yeah. i mean by like it's just strategic inclusion you can of course it's easy to have non-white characters but when your storyline's that weak it just doesn't mean very much to me as a consumer Right. Yeah. Maybe thinking when you're converting characters, changing races or changing different characteristics, taking into consideration what storylines you're planning to do with those characters and what the you know, longer or bigger implications of those particular characters not being white anymore is going to say. That's a, a really good point. And I, like Lauren, I haven't been as critical about watching the show as I maybe should have, even without any kind of English background but that's a really a really interesting thought and like Lauren said I definitely am going to be thinking a lot more about that going forward I did definitely note the the white savior um esque feeling at the end in the in the club scene or the camp scenes there um largely because I've been having that conversation in my personal life I'm trying to do some anti-racist work and um doing a book club and we had a whole discussion and we had to like try to try to explain why the blind side and the help were problematic and i i think what it comes and and that all goes ties into that white savior complex but i but i think what it boils down to when it comes to um what makes real representation what makes a black story versus a white story is um or not necessarily white but what makes specific cultural stories versus um, I guess white, yeah, that is the default. Whether we want to acknowledge that or not, the default for the U.S. is white. Um, and I, I think the you brought up a really great point about the behind-the-scenes people, um, because I think that that really is what drives some of the agency and representation. So we've talked a little bit about that around queer representation. Um, and I, I was listening to, um, I, I've shared with people before, one of my other favorite podcasts, ponta- podcast is called Fanti, and um, it's hosted by uh, two black queer um, hosts, and they have a lot of really interesting conversations, and they were talking about so-called black shows and what is considered a black show, what makes something a black show, and it was really interesting for me for them to go down the list of, like, what they considered a black show versus a white show. Like, so Insecure, they said that's a black show, but, like, Fresh Off the Boat, or not Fresh Off the Boat, Blackish is they don't consider that a black show. They, that's a black show for white people to, to teach white people lessons, which made me think of Fresh Off the Boat. And I was wondering if you had watched that show at all, if you had any <laughs> thoughts about that. Um, just out of curiosity, I'm not very familiar with it. I watched yeah. the early seasons because I like Randall Park and um, Constance Wu, mm-hmm. but I, it didn't, I mean, it didn't really do anything for me, but I didn't know that it, you know, as an Asian American, uh, yeah. as a Vietnamese American, if that has a different way of hitting for you. I haven't watched an entire episode of Fresh Off the Boat. Just because my parents, we, we with when <laughs> I lived in Arkansas, I grew up in Arkansas, I lived in the suburbs. So I, I, I already know that life. And I think Fresh Off the Boat was, mm-hmm. was isn't that Eddie Wong's story? Eddie Wong is the food mm-hmm. personality. It was initially, it, so it was initially his story, but then ABC got their hands on it. Okay. I think it was ABC. ABC got their hands on it. And, like, he has since fully washed his hands and yeah. disavowed. Like, okay. it started off with him, but now has become very um, 
yeah. a Disney-fied I see. Uh, sitcom. So I think when I, my, my mom watches it from time to time, I'm, I'm not sure if she gets it because I asked her what's going on. She can't, she doesn't remember. So I think she just has it on the background, but I think fresh off the boat from what I remember, I'm, I think it's just kind of an appeal to white people, perhaps, like what you were saying That's, about yeah. blackish. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't, I'll, so when I used to teach communication studies and my students were, had to, were having to write a critique on some sort of media product and a lot of my students were really upset about um, Mickey Rourke and Breakfast at Tiffany's, Do you, you know, because, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and I asked them, why does it have to be just on the Western lens? Can't you seek out representation from other means and other cultures and countries? I think that that goes back to what I was saying about Asian Americana episode in the Claudia Kishi Club, which is there's this, you know, Asian American means very particular things to people. And I think they really, they really want to see better representation. And I haven't seen better representa- representation necessarily, so I'll seek it from other, other means. And, you know, I just, Crazy Rich Asians, a lot of my friends liked it. I, I just consider that capitalism and I wasn't interested in watching it. But, you know, if people, <laughs> if people want, likes it, fine. But I think even that in itself is a very limiting narrative because it's about rich Asians, you know? And so like, who's left in the margins? I, there's no clear navigation for what you want as robust representation. And for me, I just rather, I'm just, I'm okay with continuing to watch soap operas in different languages. I'm, I'm really okay with that. So. I love that. I am, I'm excited to, I now I did not know that that was a thing that we could get dubbed over soap operas, but I am so going to seek some of that out. That Definitely. sounds right up my alley. <laughs> they're not that great because they're, they're, you know, Asia has its own chauvinistic tendencies and their values are pretty unfeminist. Like, so, you know, there's already problems, but I think, for me, I can learn from that discourse as much as I can learn from the Western discourse. So it's nothing's perfect. Yeah, but mm-hmm. that is something that oh, I'm yeah. trying to do, like the the intersectional analysis. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really interesting point too. Is that, um, yeah, we may get you may get more well-rounded, more realistic, less othered less exotified for lack of a better word that was not a word I just made that up <laughs> um versions if you're actually watching you know a culture that comes from that country and then you also have to deal with that country's value systems and then there becomes a whole other conversation I know that um uh there's uh, been a lot of conversation around the intersectionality and in, like anime and and queer culture and how those two converge in some ways that are very great in some ways that are not so great and um, I, I think that for someone, for people like us who like to, and obviously the people who are, want to listen to a whole ethical conversation about this, that's good. That's interesting. That's exciting. And I, I think you're right that it's, that I can get just as much out of something by tearing it apart, not tearing it apart, but like picking at it and, and digging into it as I can just from, um, you know, purely enjoying something. It definitely helps to enjoy things more if you, I, well, maybe not all the time, but things that you can be a little bit more critical of. I feel like having the the thoughts or 
being looking at things with a little bit more critical eye, like you've said you've been doing, Anna, I think it, it can help you understand things a little bit better and maybe enjoy them in a deeper way or a more interesting way than just watching it and taking it in and letting it be what it is, like taking a deeper dive and and to a certain degree, it can be a little disappointing because it's – we've had this conversation a couple of times on different books or episodes of the show. But, like, you can see that there's something better there and you wish that they had told that story or, you know, fleshed out those characters or fleshed out that part of the story. And um, I think it, it definitely is an interesting thought to maybe look at all things that you consume with a much more critical eye to enjoy it in a deeper way. Anna, you mentioned a little bit at the top when you were talking about your Instagram account and in the mm -hmm. stories, you've been doing a little bit more deeper dive on um, the books themselves and, you know, the, the issues that maybe arise, you know, obviously the fashion, but, you know, the I, I think recently you had a few things about Jesse and maybe Christie's interaction and then, <sighs> yeah. you know, some, some sort of feminism related or, you know, patriarchy related things. I think maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, how you've been going about doing that, what you're looking for, how I, I just, I, I'm not, I'm like, I'm trying to do better. Like I just said mm -hmm. in my last topic, like I'm trying to do better at looking at things with a critical eye as I'm reading, as I'm watching, as I'm listening. And I feel like you've done such a great job. I love reading your stories and, you know, seeing things with your commentary attached because it's definitely helping me be more critical when I'm reading. And I, I don't know if you could maybe talk about your process or how you're thinking and going about this, if this is just part of the way that you live your life and you wanted to focus on the babysitters club. I don't, I'm just so interested in, in your ability to be <laughs> as critical and sort of intelligent mm -hmm. on the internet, which I think a lot of people have an issue with. Really? Yes. I, just, <laughs> I, I think I had already mentioned that it, for me, it's, I mean, I really enjoy reading the books because I've been consuming at least two, three of these books a day until my library ran out. And I, I read them not very carefully, but there was something about book 56, Keep Out Claudia. And I had read that as a kid, but I guess I didn't realize that the book about Claudia finally questioning what racism means for her. I don't, at, at, towards the very end when Christy is the one, she's the one, I mean, if I'm, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling it for you, but I'm just very amazed. No, no, you're fine. Like mm -hmm. Christy, Christy, it's Christy who has a serious relationship conversation with her family about the laws were racist it was it centered the white mm -hmm. girl talking about racism you don't i mean the strongest intersectional point would be have jesse and claudia talk about it because they're the only non-white characters in that serial universe you know because when when she was introduced i think you had mentioned it for your podcast when you were talking about mallory's entrance into the club that that it was jesse's skin color that was othered and not Claudia. Even when Claudia mentioned it, she just said, I'm Japanese American and no one's no one said anything about it. But now some forty books later is Claudia has to reckon with this and it's not even told through the people who the characters who matter. And that really bothered me. Mm hmm That Yeah. In fact, I think that happened in um in Mallory's introduction or jesse's introduction book too or no it, it was mallory's yeah when mallory. we meet jesse mallory has the conversation with her parents about the uh, about race and then we get to jesse's book and it becomes largely about um the hearing community and the um the deaf community um so i think that that's 
um, disheartening we, that it doesn't get better. <laughs> yeah, we. Well, I remember when worse. we. Yeah, when we talked about that, we we were so hopeful that in the future they would do better, and it's a little bit disappointing to know that they're not going to. But obviously, we'll have that conversation when we get to that book. But that, yeah, that it, it's interesting that that you were just sort of reading, reading, reading the books, and then but when you got to that one is when you sort of realize like wait a minute what's going on in these books like it i just there's something very inconsistent with chrissy's character because she she seems mm-hmm. like your ally until she's not and then and then i think it was which book was it the baby is super special when they go to vermont to go skiing and jesse was just watching and assessing chrissy be bossy because that's her main trait she's like but we've accepted her mm-hmm. and she you know i give her a pass because She's made me feel accepted, and I think that's that's exactly the problem with what with what's going on right now. That the question of even if you're a white woman, you don't get to say that you're an ally because you're nice to people. That's just not how it works anymore. And I think mm-hmm. I think these books have been have been really is it really is a part of the, the second wave feminism discourse because I I just would I just don't see how that's aged very well, especially for for when we're trying to make space, inclusive spaces for people, but that even on the show, which is a more recent artifact, kind of even, just kind of dismisses Christy. You know, you were saying in your podcast that she she she's like, I'm bossy, get used to it. Well, actually, the lesson to the kid would be what? Actually, you need to consider who your audience and who your friends are. Do they have that space that and the privilege that you get to speak like that? Because, you know, and I'm not, I've been punished for speaking out to white yeah. people. And I just, I just, yeah. it's just, a, it's very distasteful to me. And I, and that's, that's why I can't consider the show as inclusive or as diverse as it is because it still makes concessions for the white character. And maybe that's because at the center of it, it really is centering white voices. And then we have the inclusivity but only because they're there to help prop that dominant voice or something. I'm not sure. I, so I, what I think is interesting is that I think um, that the production team of um, the Netflix series is definitely more diverse than was probably the case in the books. I Again, I can't say that for certain, but I, I in my gut, because I know that there is at least some diversity on the Netflix team, and I, I would imagine in 1988 there wasn't a whole lot that was happening in in at Scholastic and on Anna Martin's team. Um, and with that being said, I can't help but wonder, especially in regards to Christy, if the show would have been different if it hadn't been the same production team, but if it hadn't been a net, uh, revival of the Babysitter's Club and it instead had been something new, I wonder how much of the centering of Christy is a function of that's what the books were. That's, um, uh, I, I know that the the lore is Anna Martin sees herself more as a Marianne, but in the, in that way, you can read Christie as a as a reaction to her own personality, um, as opposed to you know who she really thought of herself, but maybe more as who she wishes she were. Um, I, I wonder if that has has an impact. Um, I, I don't know. I'm purely speculating at this point, but it would be interesting to see if they had if they didn't have this blueprint to work from what it would be like in 2020 because I, I think it's um, hard to ignore that you know some of this stuff is they 
they were able to make some changes, but a lot of this stuff is grandfathered in. And we, we saw even how people were reacting to um, literally minor racial swaps. Like Marianne's character did not change at all other than her skin tone. And people were still having a conniption fit about it. But that's a whole other conversation. So I think I'd be really interested in knowing the negotiations that happened because I know like on the, I think a lot of Asians were part of the, in the storyboarding for the show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think so. I wonder, so I just, I'd be interested in knowing what, what was considered negotiable and non-negotiable. Cause I just think that yeah. if, <laughs> I mean, I'm just not willing to negotiate on a lot of things. So maybe that's just a, also a negative aspect. So I'm not sure what, what concessions were made because I think my problem is with the show that a lot of things are more about the characters and not so much about the world building of Sony Brook on the mm-hmm. show. It's like lack of class issues except for like the camp. Yeah. I, I don't like it's still very cookie cutter to me. And then episode four, I I know it was very praise for the inclusion of the trans character but that trans character was used for Marianne to find her voice and I just I just have a big problem with that and and there there needs when I say world building it needs to be more of a sociological critique because I don't think doctors are that considerate when when kids are telling them to respect boundaries I just I don't think that's a very accurate reflection of Mm -hmm. the world that we're in and I think they're just even if it wants to be fluffy, I think there needs to be a nice balance between fluffy and reality that kids should learn that there are certain people who are experts and or voices of authority that they're not that kind. They're not silent people. They won't quickly say, oh, you're right. They'll probably say, I'm the doctor. I know what I'm talking about in all reality, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and that's fa- that's true. I just, if if it wanted to mirror the world at large, it, it there could have been better ways to talk about the doctor versus trans patient or I, I just mm-hmm. I didn't see why people praise it for so much but I think for me one of the reasons that I found it impactful is because I agree you're 100% right it was about Marianne finding her voice rather than actually anything about the trans character but what I I did appreciate about it in terms of um, the representational aspect is it wasn't is that her transness was or was just accepted. Like, there wasn't a sit-down with Marianne where we had to, like, explain that some people are born into the wrong bodies and blah, blah, blah. Like, they, they just sort of... Um, there actually was. Operated Don, with, like... She was, no, yeah, she was Don, did, to Don did have a conversation. Don, Don yeah. did. You're right. So, you're right. But it was, it was less... But, I mean, Marianne's conversation was not that. Marianne's conversation was just, like, this is the way that it is. Um... And that, and it didn't, it wasn't a whole episode. It was, I don't know. Now I'm talking myself out of it. Because I think what I appreciated was that it was about Marianne finding her voice. And it wasn't about, um, you know, like, let's make everybody comfortable with trans people. Mm-hmm. It just sort of assumed that you would be. But you're right. It does sort of, um, by by making that be the message, it does take away from that ability to really provide real representation on um, real trans representation instead have them be a tool of something else. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I think that the that I actually think the show did it right because I think kids are probably more accepting towards trans kids especially if you're open to it, the idea but what I think is wrong is 
how they dealt with the medical establishment dealing with trans people. I think that's that's where yeah. I think it was too glossed over. It was too easy. And especially if you had watched the Disclosure documentary, you know, that, yes. and, you know they said everything that was wrong with that series, that trans characters are, you, you get the review during the someone else talking about them or that it's somewhere in the hospital scene. Like, you know, so it did, it did have those faults. But I'm not faulting the Marianne storyline. It's more about how the ending of it, I think. That's just what, what I yes. think was not mm-hmm. a good... You know, if you wanted to teach kids about trans, I wouldn't use that because I just don't think it's an accurate representation of how the a doctor yeah. would talk to a trans child. Yeah, I That's think that, again, very, goes very back to the what we were talking about with, like, what was negotiable in the story versus what was not. And I think we talked about it a little bit with Claudia and the Phantom Phone Calls. It's like, well, the book had this piece, so we have to try to fit everything into that. So, like, in, in Marianne's story in episode four, it was like, well, you know, in the book, Jenny Prezioso had to go to the hospital, so... Bailey's going to have to go to the hospital too. So how do we make this work? And it it gets a little bit shoehorned, I think, in them trying to do that, and it makes it difficult to have the, like you said, the the sort of representation of reality as opposed to you know just giving Marianne a chance to stand up to a doctor and show her maturity. Um, one of the other things that we haven't really talked about at all that I've been thinking about a lot more. Um, as we've been going through this conversation and, and, and the series in general is um, the socioeconomic representation. Uh, like there's a very specific, very thin slice of these type of girls, like regardless of their racial background, um, they're all very mid uh, middle-class, very comfort, varying levels of comfort, but like definitely money is not an issue. Um, for this community and how that affects their stories. I I mean, I think that's a much bigger conversation that we want to get into right now. But as we've been like talking about all of this stuff, um, I realized that like, if we're talking about representation, oh boy, there's, I I think maybe even more than racially, there's a very slim portion of the population that is represented socioeconomically in this series. And I don't know how much of that is um, sort of intentional fantasy uh, we like to watch upper middle class people, you know, have pretty things um, and have nice houses and apartments and, and things like that. Um, but I think that there's that's definitely something I want to be paying more attention to um, as we go along. I think Chrissy is the embodiment of capitalism. I just every time she answers her phone, it's about business. She goes to Camp Moosehead saying like she thought of camp as a corporate retreat. I just I just can't deal with that. That. Yeah. She's just embodiment of capitalism. Capitalism ruins the party again. But like, and also, <laughs> in the um, there was uh, Happy Holidays, Jesse. So this is after like Jesse had complimented her for being accepting of her in the book series. So they were talking about Kwanzaa, and Christy's like, "Well, I kept thinking Kwanzaa's racist because only black people get to celebrate it." She actually says that, and then they're planning <laughs> oh, this kind God. of. Yes, this is book 103, so it's way into the series. And then uh, Jesse has this uh, plan to do a play on Kwanzaa, and, you know, capitalism, Christie said, well, we'll make the play about the Babysitter's Club because it, it has all the principles of Kwanzaa. It was just like, sit down, Christy. <laughs> like, oh, boy. Not everything is about you, Christy. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so upsetting. And I think you'll probably get to this one soon. 
It's book 24 about the Mother's Day Parade. Mm-hmm. Did you read that as kids? I read that. I've never read that until recently. So Jess, or Stacy comes back from New York. Her parents aren't divorced yet to help out with this Mother's Day um, event. And um, there's a scene where Stacy turns to Jesse and says, I guess you're Jesse. And in um, Chrissy's narration in her head, she's saying, well, I found that unnecessary because she knows she's black. She didn't have to say that. But it's just, Chrissy's just so inconsistent when it comes to race. And it's just either the ghostwriters weren't reading linearly or like they just made her into a complete monster. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Another one of those examples of the this character's acting out of character to fit the storyline, I think. It's just Who knows? So, yeah. so terrible. Um, yeah, there's definitely a reason that um, I was not like super excited to tell everybody that I'm a big Christie. <laughs> because I think that some of Christie's... Um, like she definitely has the power or the potential rather to use that power for good or evil. And the Christie that we see in the book, I see growing up to using those powers for like running a golden sacks or like (laughs) something (laughs) equally um, capitalistic and uh, uh, soul sucking. Um, But I can hold out hope that she went another direction. I doubt it though. Um, Okay, well, um, I think that does it for me. Anna, is there, you mentioned your blog, What Would Claudia Wear? Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you have to plug or you would like us to check out? No, I don't have anything okay. to offer, really. That's, you, you have no idea. This has been such a great conversation. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to well, say before we wrap up, if there's anything else that we haven't touched on that you want to throw in, because yeah. like like Lauren said, this has been a great conversation. We've loved having you. and. I'm I'm pretty certain I can speak for Lauren and say that hopefully we'll get to have you again in the future because we would love to get more insights from you on the book. But like I said, if there's any other topics you wanted to throw in real quick before we wrap up, we would love to hear them. Um, so I'll just maybe allude to the amount of um, Native American imagery throughout the book. I didn't really notice this until recently. So that's something for you to ponder as you go into the series so yeah but it's more about like it's more about the more uh, like the stereotyping and the names as othering and all that stuff so that's something too and it comes back often so you'll see (laughs) yeah that thank you for telling us that because that'll be something that we'll definitely now be on the lookout for yeah i'm excited to keep my eyes open for that that'll be awesome hey so lauren any final club business well, first of all, we want to thank the lovely Anna Wynn for coming and talking to us and sharing. Um, and other than that, you can follow us if you have any feedback at Generation BSC on Twitter or on um, Instagram. Or you can email us at generationbsc at gmail.com. Okay, so with that, this emergency meeting interview episode of the Babysitter's Club is now adjourned. Say hello to your friends.